Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Youth of Washington, told in the form of an autobiography. The book is written by S. Weir Mitchell and looks at the early life of George Washington. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who listens and supports the show. Huge thank you to new Patreon page. Your monthly financial contribution helps me bring out more and more episodes. Thank you to regular listener Liam J for your kind review on CastBox. Thank you also to listener Josie for mentioning me in your Insta story. Thank you also to listener F-E-R-H-R-C for your lovely Insta story. The support of listeners is what helps me bring out more episodes and your reviews and comments are very appreciated. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the ratings. The Youth of Washington Diary November 1797 My retirement from official duties as president has enabled me to restore order on my farm and in some degree to repair the neglected buildings which are fallen to decay. The constant coming of guests moved, I fear, more by curiosity than by other reasons, is diminished owing to snows, unusual at this period of the year. Owing to these favouring conditions, I have now some small leisure to reflect on a life which has been too much one of action and of public interests to admit, hitherto of that kind of retrospection which is natural and, as it seems to me, fitting in a man of my years who has little to look forward to and much to look back upon. My recent uneasiness, lest I should be called upon to conduct a war against our old allies, the French, is much abated, and I feel more free to consider my private affairs. I am too far advanced in the veil of life to bear much buffeting, and I have satisfaction in the belief we have escaped a new war for which the nation has not yet the strength. 
for sure I am, if this country is preserved in tranquility twenty years longer, it may bid defiance in a just cause to any powers whatever, such in that time will be its power, wealth and resources. Increasing infirmity and too frequent aches and ailments remind me that I am nearing the awful moment when I must bid adieu to sublunary things and appear before that divine being to whom alone my country owes the success with which we have been blessed. But the great disposer of events is also the being who has formed the instruments of his will and left them responsible to the arbitration of conscience. Therefore I have of late spent much time in considering my past life and how it might have been better or more successful and in thankfulness that it has escaped many pitfalls. My reflections have brought back to mind a remark which seems to me just, made by my aide, Colonel Tillman, a man more given to philosophic reflection than I have been. He asked me if I did not think there was something providential in the way each period of my life had been, an education for that which followed it. I said that this idea had at times presented itself to my mind, and when I betrayed curiosity, he went on to say that my very early education in self-reliance and my training as a surveyor of wild lands had fitted me for frontier warfare, and this in turn had prepared me for action on a larger stage, and that all through the greater war my necessities called for constant dealing with political questions, and with men who were not soldiers. He thought that his hand in turn educated me for the position to which my countrymen summoned me at a later time. As I was silent for a little, this gentleman, who became my aide de camp in June 1780, and for whom I conceived a warm and lasting affection, thinking his remark might have been considered a liberty, said as much, excusing himself. I replied that, so far from annoying me, I found what he had to say interesting. When, recently, these remarks of Colonel Tillman recurred to me, I felt that they were correct, and dwelling upon them at this remote time, my interest in the sequence of the events of my youthful life assumed an importance which has led me of late to endeavour with the aid of my diaries to refresh my memories of a past which had long ceased to engage my attention. 
I remember writing once that any recollections of my later life, distinct from the general history of the war, would rather hurt my feelings than tickle my pride while I lived. I do not think that vanity is a trait of my character. I would rather leave posterity to think and say what they please of me. Those who served with me in war and peace will be judged as we become subjects of history, and time may unfold more than prudence ought to disclose. Concerning this matter, I wrote to Colonel Humphreys that if I had talent for what he desired me to do, I had not leisure to turn my thoughts to commentaries. Consciousness of a defective education and want of leisure, I thought unfitted me for such an undertaking. I did, however, answer certain questions put to me by Colonel Humphreys concerning the Indian wars, but he has, so far, made no use of these notes. One of these considerations does not so much apply at present, for I possess the leisure, and in recording my early reminiscences, I shall do so for myself alone, and assuredly shall find no satisfaction in comments on the conduct of other officers who, like myself, were honestly engaged in learning and at the same time practising a business in which none of us had a large experience. I shall confine my attention to recalling the events of my youth, and as I hate deception even where the imagination only is concerned, I shall try for my own satisfaction to deal merely with facts General Hamilton, whose remarks I have often just reason to remember, once wrote me that no man had ever written a true biography of himself, that he was apt to blame himself excessively or to be too much prone to self-defence. He went on to state that an autobiography was written either from vanity and to present the man favourably to posterity, or because he desired for his own pleasure in the study of himself to recall the events of his career. In the latter case, there is no need of publication. It is only in order to such self-examination as that which he refers that I am induced to set down the remembrances of my earlier days, and because writing of them will, I feel, enable me more surely to bring them back to mind. I have no other motive. Whatever just ambitions I have had have been fully gratified, indeed far beyond my wishes. The great searcher of hearts is my witness that I have now no wish which aspires beyond the humble 
and happy lot of living and dying private citizen on my own farm. In my estimation, more permanence and a genuine happiness is to be found in the sequestered walks of connubial life, so long denied me in the war, than in the more tumultuous and imposing scenes of success, ambition. Nor can I complain. I am retiring here within myself, envious of none. I am determined to be pleased with all, and with heartfelt satisfaction, feeling that my life has been on the whole happy. I will move gently down the stream until I sleep with my fathers, there are indeed not many circumstances in my life before the war, which it now gives me pain to recall. I could not truthfully say this of that great contest, nor of the political struggles of my service as president. Mr. Adams, or perhaps Mr. Jefferson, once said of me that I was a man too sensitive to condemnation. This I believe to be correct, but I have not discovered that my ability to decide was ever largely affected by either unreasonable blame or the bribes of flattery. The treachery of men who professed for me friendship and the intrigues of those who, like Conway, Lee, Gates and Rush, used ignoble means to weaken my authority, when it was of the utmost importance to our common cause, that it should be strengthened, were calculated to give pain chiefly, because they lessened my usefulness. Nor am I ever willing to dwell upon the treason of Arnold, which cost me the most painful duty of the war, and lost to the country a great soldier, who had not the virtue to wait until, in the course of events, his services would obtain their reward. It is, however, somewhat to be wondered at that in so long a war, where hope did at times seem to disappear, the catalogue of traitors was so small. It is strange that there were not more, for few men have virtue to withstand the highest bidder. As to ill-natured and unjust reflection of my conduct, I feel and have felt everything that hurts the sensibility of a gentleman, but to preserve in one's duty and be silent is the best answer to calumny. Dr. Franklin has wisely said that no examples are so useful to a man as those which his own conduct affords and that he was right in his opinion, I have reason to believe. This I have observed to be true of anger, to which I am, or was, subject. I flatter myself that I have now learned to command my temper, although it is still on rare occasions likely to become mutinous. 
I do not observe that mere abuse ever troubles me long, but in the presence of cowardice or ingratitude, I am subject to fits of rage. Arnold's treason distressed me, but the treachery of one of my cabinet, Edmund Randolph, the nephew and adopted son of my dear friend, Peyton Randolph, disturbed my temper as nothing had done since the misconduct of Lee at Monmouth. If in any instance I was swayed by personal and private feelings, in the exercise of official patronage and power, it was in the case of Mr. Randolph, and this fact added to the anger which his conduct excited. I willingly turn from the remembrance of ingratitude, a sin that my soul arbors. It is not a severe tax which all must occasionally pay, who are called to eminent stations of trust, not only to be held up as conspicuous marks to the enmity of the public adversaries of their country, but to the malice of secret traitors and the envious intrigues of false friends and factions. But all this over, I willingly leave time and my country to pronounce the verdict of history. As I wrote what just now I have set down, a remark of Mr. John Adams came into my mind. He said it was difficult for a man to write about himself without feeling that he was all the time in the presence of an audience. This may be true of Mr. Adams, but I am not aware that it is true of me. The statement I shall now record of myself and for myself might be made very full as to events by the use of the details of my diaries, but this desire to avoid my attention is to deal chiefly with my own youthful life and the influences which affected it for good or for ill. Being without children to transmit my name, I have taken no great interest in learning much about my ancestors. I have, indeed, been too much concerned with larger matters. It is, however, far from my design to believe that heraldry, coat armour, etc., might not be rendered conducive to public and private uses with us, or that they can have any tendency, unfriendly, to the purest spirit of republicanism. Nor does it seem to me that pride in being come of gentry and of dutiful and upright men is without its value, if we draw from an honourable past nourishment to sustain us in continuing to be what our forefathers were. This also should make men who have children the more careful as to their own manner of life. And as for myself, although denied this great blessing, I may perhaps wisely have been destined to feel that all my countrymen were to me something more than my fellow citizens.
I have heard my half-brother Lawrence say that he had learned from his elders that my English ancestors were violent loyalists, especially one Sir Henry Washington, when the great struggle arose between the Parliament and the King in the time of the Commonwealth. I recall that, when a young man, I was riding with my friend George Mason, and when this matter arose, he asked me whether, if I had lived in those days, I should have been for the Crown or the Commons. I replied that if I had lived in that time, I could have answered him, but that I was not enough informed concerning that period to be able to state on which side I should have been. Certainly, I should have found it hard to make war on the king. I profess myself to be ignorant as to much that concerns my ancestry, when too young to have the smallest interest in the matter, I heard my two half-brothers and William Fairfax conversing on the subject of the origin of my family. The brothers were not very clear as to our descent, but were of opinion that we came from the Washingtons of Solgrave, originally of Lancashire. In 1791, the Garda King at Arms, Sir Isaac Hurd, wrote to me, sending a pedigree of my family, but I had to confess it was a subject to which I had given very little attention. In fact, except as to our later history, I could only say that we came from Lancashire, Yorkshire, or some still more northerly country. Most of the early colonists of all classes were too busy in fighting Indians and raising the means of living to concern themselves with the relatives left in England. This indifference was not uncommon among us and was in those early days to be expected. It explains why we and other descendants of settlers knew and indeed cared too little about our ancestors. I do not know what exactly was the station of the father of the brothers who first came over. John, my ancestor, and Lawrence, his brother, it is of more moment to me to know that my forefathers in this country have been gentlemen and have in many positions of trust, both in civil employ and in the military line, served the colonies and, later, their country with faithfulness and honour. As concerns the question of ancestry, and a man's judging of himself by that alone. I am much of Colonel Tillman's opinion, who once said to me, speaking of Mr. B, that when a man had to look back upon his ancestors to make himself sure he was a gentleman, he was but a poor sort of man, which I conceive to be true. 
my great-grandfather, John Washington, the first emigrant of our name, was the son of Lawrence and M. Phyllis, his wife. He went first to Barbados, but, not being pleased, came later to Virginia, that is, in 1657. It is certain that my great-grandfather, in some respects, possessed qualities which resembled those which I possess myself. He was a man of great personal strength, inclined to war, very resolute, and of a masterful and very violent temper. My great-grandfather's brother Lawrence was engaged for a time in the mercantile way, and at one time signed himself as a Luton County Bradford merchant. He made some voyages to Virginia, and home again before he settled in the colony, and may have acquired land in England. For as I shall state later, he devised real estate in the home country. As I speak of the home country, I am reminded that even after the War of Independency, the habit of speaking of England as home prevailed with many. So strong was the attachment to the mother country, and indeed nothing but the folly of Great Britain could have broken the bonds which united us. My great-grandfather, John Washington, brought with him a wife from England. Her maiden name I do not know. She and her two children died within a few years of his landing. The brothers mention in their wills property in England, but where or exactly what it was they do not say. It would seem, therefore, that it is not poverty which drove my ancestor to emigrate, that this property was not mere money. The proceeds of tobacco appears to be shown by the will of my great-grandfather's brother Lawrence, who devised to marry his daughter, his whole estate in England, real as well as personal. My great-grandfather married secondly the widow of Walter Broadhurst, daughter of Nathaniel Pope of Apotomax, gentleman. My grandfather Lawrence was the first-born of this marriage. My great-grandfather died in 1677. He was of that importance as to have named for him the parish in which he resided. The brothers were not the only ones of the name who came to Virginia. There was also a cousin, Martha Washington. She emigrated to Virginia and married Nicholas Hayward of Westmoreland. How it was that, being a spinster, she came over alone. I am not informed that she left her property to her cousins John and Lawrence, and a gold twenty-shilling piece to each, and to their sons each a feather bed and furniture, and to their heirs forever 
which does not appear to me long for a bed to last. There were also others, but if related, I have not felt concerned to inquire. They spelled the name Visington in certain deeds, which I have heard was the ancient manner of spelling it. Of them I know nothing further. My great-grandfather left a legacy to the rector of the Lower Church of Washington Parish and ordered that a funeral sermon be preached, which appears to me, as Lord Fairfax said, to be a certain way to secure being well spoken of at least once after death. He also provided in his will for a tablet of the Ten Commandments and also the King's Arms to be set up in the church of his parish. My connection with the church of my fathers has varied in interest from time to time, for although I have at times partaken of the sacrament and even fasted, I have not always felt so inclined, although I have with reasonable punctuality attended upon the services. I have had all my life a disinclination to converse on this subject and confess, as Dr. Franklin once remarked to me, that silence is sometimes wisdom as concerns a man's creed. In considering so much of my family history as is known to me, I perceive that men married at an early age and remained no long-time widowers. Also, I observe that many children died young, as was like enough to happen on plantations remote from physicians, and indeed these were few in number, and not as good as in the northern colonies. I know less of my grandfather Lawrence than of his father, he did not increase the importance of the family, neither was he inclined to public business. He was, as I have understood, a quiet, thrifty man, and no seeker of adventure by land or water. He married Mildred Warner, by whom he had children, and died leaving a competent estate but none to be compared with the great lands accumulated by the birds or carters. I conceive him to have been a person of moderate opinions concerning the Church of England, and as one who may have considered the dissenting sects as ill-used. This I gather from a book given to me three years ago by a gentleman of Philadelphia, of the Society of Friends, who would have had me to believe that my grandfather was of that sect. This book is the life of one John Fothergill, a Quaker preacher, who says that in 1720 he held a meeting at Mattox at Justice Washington's, a friendly man where the love of God opened my heart towards the people, much to my comfort and their satisfaction.
I do not suppose it to have meant more than that, as the church could not be used by a dissenter, just as Washington willingly gave the good man the use of his own house. My father, Augustine, was born in 1694 on the farm known as Wakefield, granted in 1667 to his grandfather and lying between Bridges and Pope's Creek in Westmoreland, on the north neck between the Potomac and the Raffinock. My father in his will says, for as much as my several children, in this my will mentioned, several ventures cannot inherit from one another. What he speaks of as his ventures were his two marriages, a venture does not appear to me to be an appropriate name for the uncertain state of matrimony. The first venture was Jane Butler, who lies buried at Wakefield. I was born at Wakefield on February 11, 1732, at about 10 in the morning. I was baptised in the Pope's Creek Church and had two godfathers and one godmother, Mildred Gregory. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I hope you're feeling drowsy. In the meantime, while you fall asleep, I'll be working on another episode to bring to you very soon. Until then, good night.